0: Exodus chapter 3, page 56 in your pew Bible. What would happen if God decided to show up in this church in a big way? What would that look like? What would we expect What would God say? What would God do in our midst if He decided to show up in a big way in this church? Would He say encouraging things? Would He say challenging things? What kinds of things would happen if God came to our church and visited us in a special way? Would broken relationships be immediately mended? Would sin in our lives be quickly eradicated? Would all our physical needs be quickly met? What would happen if God decided to come to this church in a special way? Would we experience revival, spiritual awakening, spiritual reawakening? What would that look like? What would happen if God decided to show up big in your life? What would that look like? What would would he say to you? What would he do for you? Would you be afraid and would you run away from his presence? Would you welcome his presence? Would you uh, welcome it even if it hurts just a little bit or a lot? Would you weep for joy? Would you weep because of your sin? What would God's presence and power look like in your life if God decided to visit you, to meet with you in a special way? These are the questions I ask as I approach Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Because this passage, what it does is it gives us a picture of what happens when God shows up on the scene. When God decides to meet with his people. It tells us two things. It tells us how God comes to his people. And it tells us why God comes to his people. So let's review a little bit. Where are we in this Exodus Story. Well, you'll remember in Exodus chapter 1, God plants his people Israel, starting with a little family in Egypt, and this family begins to grow and, and, and grow strong under God's hand, but Egypt, remember in chapter 1, enslaves them and threatens them with infanticide. That's chapter 1, and when it ends, everything seeps, seems really bleak. But then in chapter 2, God introduces hope with the birth of this little baby boy, uh, Moses. The one who God would one day use to deliver his people from Egypt's clutches. And in chapter 2, we we saw this last week, we see God's hidden smile as, as God does marvelous things in the life of Moses to protect him as a little baby and then to prepare him for his eventual task as God's instrument of redemption. That's chapter 2. The end of this chapter, we see God's heart for his people. We kind of zoom out from the particular scene of Moses' life, and God says, I see my people, I hear their cries, I remember my covenant, my commitment to them, and I'm going to act. That's how chapter 2 ends. So how will God show up? What will God do? Let's read Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through about verse 8. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. I'm going to stop there for just a few moments, and we're going to continue reading later. I want to give some introductory comments to set up this scene. You remember the first 40 years of Moses' life? He was a prince, and he was in Egypt. He was enjoying life in a palace. He had the comforts, the conveniences of this Egyptian superpower. He had all kinds of good food and and, uh, servants, and people were coming to his aid. But the next 40 years of his life, you'll remember, he was in Midian. That's where he is now, where all of a sudden, he is a nobody. Nobody knows this guy. And he becomes a shepherd. We know that shepherding was a low-income kind of job. In fact, Moses wasn't shepherding his own flock. He was actually taking care of his father-in-law's flock at this time. He was not a wealthy man. He was probably dependent on his father-in-law just to make ends meet, certainly for a job. And so the prince has become a pauper. And one day, this shepherd, this, this man, he wanders off with his sheep to Horeb to a, a particular mountain. It would later be known as Mount Sinai, the mountain where God meets with his people. But at this point, it was just like any other mountain. Just a normal mountain. Big, threatening, maybe impeding. Maybe it was dangerous because of bandits or maybe his sheep could get lost in this mountain. But it was just a mountain. Until he notices this little bush in the distance. Now it wasn't unusual for Moses probably to see fires on mountains because sometimes shepherds would make fires to keep warm, especially at night. Sometimes, you know, little bramble bushes would spontaneously catch fire because this was an arid, uh, very, very hot piece of land, right? The Sinai Peninsula. But this was special, right? This was special. There's something different that was going on here. And as he got closer, he realized this bush was not only a flame, but... It wasn't consumed. It would not burn up. So what was going on? Well, as he came closer, God spoke. Now, we're reading the Old Testament, so maybe most of us don't find this extraordinary, but we should find this extraordinary. And here's why. The last time God spoke to his people was 400 years before this moment. 400 years. It was to uh, Jacob, Genesis chapter 46, when God spoke to him uh, as he was preparing to come into Egypt. 400 years of silence. Meanwhile, the Israelites were going through some pretty intense slavery and persecution. 400 years where God was silent. Until this moment, on this mountain, With Moses. So, how does God show up to Moses? How does God show up? I have two points under this question. How does God show up? First of all, he shows up in holiness. God comes to Moses in holiness. The burning bush is a theophany, and that's just a fancy word which means appearance of God. And uh, fire often would accompany God's self revelations to his people. You remember Genesis chapter 15, It was a, it's a pretty strange scene. I'm not going to get into it. You can read it this afternoon. But right in the middle of the scene, there was a pot of fire. And this pot of fire represented God. Later in Exodus chapter 13, we see a, a pillar of fire, which led God's people to actually this mountain. And there are other examples as well of fire accompanying God's presence. Now, you know, think about past history, uh, maybe purple clothing or, or uh, jewels or crowns or the presence of armed guards. These kinds of things would cue us into recognizing we are in the presence of royalty. Well, in the Old Testament, fire was one of these cues for God. When you saw fire, you knew, perhaps, that God was around, that God was doing something in your midst. So we have to ask the question what does fire represent? Well, it represents God's glory, it represents his purity, but it especially represents God's holy presence, his holiness. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to be holy? We use that word a lot in the church. Sometimes we use it negatively. No one here wants to be a holy roller. Um, you know, nobody wants to be holier than thou. Okay, so what does it actually mean then? To be holy, since the Bible uses this word often. Well, the Hebrew word literally means to cut, to cut, to take something and and separate it from something else. You think about it this way: to, to set one thing apart for a particular purpose. That's what it means to be holy. It's not just moral purity, it's not just righteousness, it's drawing a distinct line in the sand which separates one thing from another. That's what it means to be holy. So how is God holy? He is completely and holy wholly other. He is completely and holy other. He is sui generis. It's Latin for in a class entirely of his own. You cannot put anything in the category of God. You cannot lump anything in with God. He is a, a cut above. He is entirely superior. He is entirely different. Holiness, what it does is it actually adds a special luster to every other attribute of God. So think about it this way God is love. Well, God is love, but He is actually, the love that he bears is a holy love. It's a cut above. God is merciful. Yes, he's merciful, but it is a holy mercy. So we're talking about a superior kind of mercy. God is just. His justice is a cut above. It's entirely superior and dif- different. So when God decides to visit his people, he comes in utter holiness. He doesn't relinquish his holiness just because he's here with his people. He keeps his holiness. And that's why we see in verse six, look at verse six. Moses' response, excuse me, verse, yeah, the end of verse six. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is real fear that Moses is experiencing. The real fear of God. It reminds me of when Jesus, remember this scene when Jesus comes to calm the storm? It was a fascinating scene. Uh, First, his disciples were afraid of this great storm. They were so afraid, and they, they wake Jesus up. But by the end of that very interesting little episode, they weren't thinking about the storm. They were thinking about the guy who calmed the storm. Who is this guy? They were afraid of Jesus. This is the fear of God. When God visits his people in utter holiness, God's people respond with holy fear and even dread. And that's why God says here, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. The mountain wasn't holy. There's nothing special about this mountain. The only thing that was special about this mountain is that God decided to show up on it. That's why this mountain was holy, because he is holy. And so he says, take off your shoes, Moses. Take off your sandals. You can't just approach God casually, brothers and sisters. You know, on church websites, it often says things like, come as you are. And that's a good sentiment. It probably it may say that on our church website. I should check. It's a good sentiment. It's a good sentiment because we want to encourage folks to come to our church. It doesn't matter how you look or how much money you make. We want you to come as you are. You can wear shorts. You can wear a shirt and tie. Come as you are. It's a good sentiment. But (laughs) when you encounter the living God, you can't just come as you are. You can't just come casually. God may have initiated this communication with Moses, but God is still holy. He is still holy. And that means there are limits to how we approach God or how far we can come towards God. God isn't just our buddy. God isn't just our friend. He is holy. In fact, he is so holy, there are angelic beings created for the sole purpose of worshiping him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's how holy our God is. You don't just run up to him like he's Santa Claus or a a cuddly uh, grandpa. He's holy. So you approach God with trembling with fear, with awe, and with reverence. Brothers and sisters, is that how you approach God today? Is that how you approach God today? Or are you too casual with how you approach him? This reminds me a little bit of the Old Testament temple of God. There's a special place right in the middle of that temple. It was called the Holy of Holies, and there's the Ark of the Covenant and the the mercy seat of God. It was the footstool of God. And in this place, in the Old Testament, God decided to, to meet with his people in a special way. That's where he resided. And there's a high priest. And every year, the high priest, he was the only person once a year he can go inside this Holy of Holy place. And he would sprinkle blood on this mercy seat to atone for the sins of his people. Now imagine, now imagine you are this high priest. Here's the deal. If you mess this up, God's going to kill you. That's what the Old Testament says. God would kill you if you mess this situation up. And so imagine you are this high priest. I mean, you If you get voted in day one, you've got 365 days to perfect this, right? I mean, you're going to be practicing, you're going to be, you know, setting up things with your kids, and I got to make sure I get this just right. I need to do this on God's term or else I'm going to die. And what the people of God would do is they would tie a, a rope around this high priest's ankle because if he drops dead, they could pull him out, right? I mean, they couldn't go in there, only the high priest could. A high priest entered the Holy of Holies, trembling with great awe and on God's terms. You know, today we don't approach God in a temple. That's not what concerns God. But God is concerned about other things as we approach him today. He's concerned about the posture of our hearts, of course. He is concerned about about that. He He doesn't want us to approach Him nonchalantly or flippantly. We approach God, or we ought to approach God, with great reverence, with faith, with joy. But it's not just our hearts that God is concerned about as we approach Him. Sometimes we think that God's Word doesn't really tell us about how we worship God or how we approach God. Sometimes we think as New Testament Protestant Christians, all those traditions and all those things are are done away with, and all that really matters is our hearts, and yeah, it's got to be about Jesus. And that's a great place to start. But God's Word has plenty to say about specifically how. We are to approach God, both as individuals as well as corporately in the gathered people, like this morning at church. God cares about how we sing, what we sing. God cares about how we approach this this book, the Bible. God cares about how we preach. God cares about how we pray. He cares about these things. It's not only the heart of worship he's concerned about, but the forms of worship. So, brothers and sisters, when you approach God, you can't just come as you are. You take off your sandals. You take off your shoes. Friend, if you're not yet a Christian and you're listening to this strange story about a burning bush that doesn't burn up, I wonder, do you have a sense of the transcendent in your life? Do you have a sense of the transcendent in your life? Have you encountered the living God who is holy, holy, holy? Or have you gone through all of your life without ever encountering the holy other? So God comes to Moses and he comes to us in utter holiness. Number two, God comes down. God comes down. Notice that God is, first of all, he's having a conversation with Moses. This should astonish us. God is talking to a man. He's, he's conversing with Moses. He hasn't given up his utter holiness in this con- communication. He's actually accommodating himself and making himself accessible to Moses out of his kindness and love for Moses and for Israel. Here's a, here's a free parenting tip from my 19 seconds of parenting experience. You ready? If you want to parent well, get down on their level, literally. Get down on your knees. Make eye contact with your kids. If you want to be a good parent, do that. And that's what God's doing here with Moses. Just like a a good parent will stoop to get eye to eye with a child, God is stooping real low to get eye to eye with Moses. What does God say to Moses? Well, he calls Moses by name. He repeats his name, Moses, Moses. He's not just trying to get his attention. In ancient Near Eastern culture, repeating someone's name like this uh, communicates affection, communicates great love. And we see it in other parts of scriptures as well. Remember God calling Samuel? He says, Samuel, Samuel. Jesus calling Martha, Martha, Martha. It's not Marcia, Martha, it's Martha, Martha. <laughs> Do you remember Jesus on the cross at that very powerful, uh, uh, powerful moment as he was hanging in there on the cross and he was about to, to die and he addresses his father? How did he address his father? My God, my God. And then after he was raised from to new life, and, and now as, he's, you know, as he was ascended to heaven and he was seated at the very right hand of God, he looked down on this Damascus road at his future servant Saul. Remember what he said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here God calls to Moses with affection. This is no aloof God. This is no distant God who is sitting up in the heavens doing his own thing. This is a God who wants to be intimately involved in our lives. I love the language God uses in verses 7 and 8. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying. I'm concerned about their suffering. Verse 8, so I have come down. So I have come down. How God comes to Moses is how God will also come to Israel. He's going to come down. God is promising to stoop real low so that he can harness all of his power, all of his resources, all of his strength to rescue his people. God's going to come down for Israel. And that's what we're going to see in the chapters ahead. That's what's coming. And it begins with God stooping real low here with Moses and then promising to stoop low with Israel. This is the great paradox of our God. He is completely and utterly holy and glorious and pure and, and above us. We can't, we can't uh, say enough words to, to, to express that truth. It's difficult to do that. And yet, because of his great love for his people, he has chosen to stoop real low, to get down on eye level with us, to speak to us, to act on behalf of his little children. You know, I love these old churches, um, Westminster Abbey and and St. Paul's Cathedral in England. There's lots of churches like that that are all over the world. You know, I think the architecture captures something of the transcendence of God, the holiness of God, with, with, with their high ceilings and, and wide spaces and, and the, the artwork. When you walk into some of these buildings, you get a sense of God. And it's easy to see why you would find people in these old churches at all different kinds of the day, right? Right? Two in the morning, four in the morning. Might be someone in these churches if they're open. Why are they there? Well, they, they want help and, and maybe they're in crisis. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably true. But I think what they're really looking for is a sense of God. They're looking for a sense of God, a sense of the transcendence. That's really why they're sitting in that pew and they're, they're wringing their hands and they're throwing up prayers to God. They want a sense of God. There's nothing magical about any of those buildings. There's nothing magical about this sanctuary. It's just a building. But at least in some fashion, these buildings point to God's vast nature, his heavenly character, his holy otherness. But you know, I don't think it's just a sense of the transcendent that people are looking for when they go into these church buildings and they're praying at one and two in the morning. I think what every human being longs for is actually to be touched by the transcendent. To be touched by the transcendent. Like Moses was here on this mountain. He was touched in some way by the transcendent God of the universe. You know, it's one thing for Uh, the Queen of England or the the President of the United States or, I don't know, Billy Graham, to get off their high pedestals that we've built for them, of course, and, and to come to our homes and maybe visit with us and talk with us. For them to make time for us, that would be astonishing. We would feel awfully special, wouldn't we? But for the God of the universe, the holy God of the universe, to come down, and then to, to, to come down without relinquishing his utter holiness? And then to come down without relinquishing his holiness and to touch our very lives? That's something entirely different. Many of you have experienced God's holy touch in your lives. It's not always comfortable, is it? Sometimes it can be painful. Painful. Sometimes God can make us feel uncomfortable because he's doing business in our lives. He wants to change us. If God's going to come down and and do something, it means change for us. I still remember sitting in my church office. This is about three years ago. It was early. It was about 7 a.m., weekday. I had a breakfast appointment in central Massachusetts that day. And so I spent a few minutes reading some scripture and praying But this wasn't a normal time with God. The five or six evenings before this morning, I had the same reoccurring dream. It was this dark, oppressive dream, a dream where I was constantly reminded about a past failure in my life. Five, six nights in a row, I'm having this dream, and there I am this particular morning. I couldn't shake the awful feelings, as you would imagine. And so I prayed earnestly, and I I, I searched the Scriptures frantically for something. Give me something, Lord, to help me. Nothing landed for probably a good 30 minutes. I felt like I was just tossing up prayers to the ceiling or coming back down. And so I, I remember sitting there quietly for a few minutes, as I was reading a little scripture, within a few minutes, I was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with a sense of dread and a sense of awe. It started to wash over me as I sensed God's presence. I began to weep, not because I was feeling the peace of God, but actually because I was not feeling the peace of God. God's presence made me feel Uncomfortable. You see, God was dealing with my sin. I didn't see it until that moment. There was built up resentment in my heart. There was built up pride. There was a sense of entitlement in my heart. And that was behind the scenes of this dream. I kept reoccurring. And God spoke to me through his word and said, repent. So I sought his forgiveness. When I sat down that morning, I didn't think I needed all that, but I did. A few minutes later, I was in the car. I was driving to that breakfast appointment, and uh, I played a CD of of some Christian music, uh, some hymns, some songs. It was really old. I'd made it five or six years ago uh, before this moment. And surprisingly, my, uh, my heart connected with each of those songs. It was about a 15-minute ride, so I played through most of the CD. And as each song came, came on the, the speakers, I was able to connect with God through each song. It was like God had lined up each of these songs just for this moment. And I began to weep again. But this time I had Peace. This time, God communicated to me his wonderful love. This is the transcendent coming to touch a broken, sinful man. Have you experienced the transcendent touch of God? Have you experienced the transcendent touch of God? My last point First, we talked about how God comes to His people. He comes in holiness. He comes down. And lastly, we're going to look at why God comes to His people. God comes to get His people out and to get them in, to get them out, to get them in. And I'm going to explain that in just a second. Let me remind you of these verses first. I'm going to read verse seven to the end of the tra- uh, to, to verse ten. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Interesting, at the end of chapter 2, we see the heart of God. We see that, uh, look at verse 24 of chapter 2. It says, God heard, God remembered. Verse 25, God looked. God was concerned. We see those same words echoed in verse 7 and then again in verse 9 as God communicates his heart to Moses. So it's out of this tremendous compassion, out of this this incredible commitment to God's people that he acts, that he decides to do all of this. You know, if you're not sure if God sees you in your suffering, then let verse 7 and let verse 9 persuade you. He sees you. He hears your cries, he's concerned, and he's going to act. He's going to act. It may not be exactly what you want. It may not be exactly when you want it, but he's going to act on your behalf. If you're wondering, does God hear my cry? Is he listening? Does he see me? Does does God care about what I'm going through right now? The answer is a resounding yes. God's compassion is on display here. But what's the real purpose for God coming down to Moses and to Israel? It's found in verse 8. So I have come down, here it is, to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Why did God come down to intervene in this Exodus story? It's to get them out of Egypt and to get them into the promised land, Canaan, which is modern-day Palestine. That's why God has stooped so low to talk to Moses, and that's why God will stoop low, just a moment, just a few chapters here, for Israel. Now, that may sound a little funny. Is this whole big episode, is, is this, uh, you know, this rescue operation all just about real estate? Is it just about land for two million people? Is that what this is all about? That sounds kind of overkill. But we need to understand one thing to know why this is important. This land is exactly what God promised Abraham. Centuries before this, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to make you and your family, your descendants into this great nation. Well, God was doing that. But he also told Abraham, I'm going to give you some land. And that's what is going on here. God is promising and he's reminding them, I haven't forgotten, I'm going to get you some land. You see, this rescue operation for Israel doesn't just end by getting them out of Egypt. That's only half of this salvation project. God's salvation means getting them out and getting them in to a new situation. God is interested in not just rescue, God is interested in resettlement. What does this new land look like? Well, for Israel, it was good and spacious. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land of abundance, in other words. It was a land where God would provide for them, a a land where God would be with his people. It's a place of great enjoyment, land flowing with, pick your favorite fatty drink and pick your favorite sweet, I don't know, espressos and chocolates, whatever, right? This is an enjoyable place to be with God. This is Eden regained. And this Old Testament story of salvation is actually a picture. It's a pattern for New Testament salvation as well. God's not just interested in getting us, his church, out of our enslavement to sin and the things of this world. He's not just interested in offering us forgiveness of sins. He's not just interested in making sure we have a clean break from our old life in Egypt. God's salvation project includes getting us into the land. He's committing to getting us out and getting us in, out of our old lives and into new life with Jesus. He wants to rescue us, he wants to resettle us. That's what God wants to do with us and eventually resettle us on the new earth. That's the ultimate promised land. Some of you are here today and you're still lingering in Egypt. You're still lingering in your old lives. You've forgotten the extent of God's salvation project. You've stopped halfway. You know you've you've got one foot in the uh, one foot in Egypt and one foot in the Promised Land. You're straddling the fence, and you're wondering why in the world is this Christianity thing not working out for me? Well, maybe you've forgotten brothers and sisters, that God has come down to bring you out and to bring you in? Is that what you are experiencing, brothers and sisters? Is that your understanding of the Christian life? Some of you might be thinking, gosh, I don't think I've even left Egypt. I'm still living in Egypt. I'm still living it up in Egypt. I didn't even know there was another place to go. I didn't know that God has provided a way for me to get out. Well, he has. He has provided a rescue operation for you because maybe you're enslaved to sin. That's why he sent Jesus, to die for your sins so you can get out and you can get into a new place. Now, it's interesting. God has already visited his people with Jesus, hasn't he? He's already done this. Sometimes we think we need a fresh experience of God, You may feel that. I feel that sometimes. I pray for that. I I think that's fine. Maybe, Maybe we do. Maybe God will grant that to us in our lifetime. It's possible. But God has already come to his people with Jesus. In Jesus, God comes in holiness, doesn't he? The transcendent one who is down with his people. In Jesus, God also comes down to us. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. Jesus came down. The holy other came down in Jesus. Jesus brings together the, the transcendence and the imminence of God. Because in Jesus, we get a friend and we get a king. We got someone who can put his arms around our shoulders and comfort us as we go through the storms of life. We got someone who can sympathize with our weaknesses, someone who's flesh and blood just like us. We also get a king. We get the guy who can silence the storms of our life. He's got the power to do it, he's got the authority to do it. So when the storms of life hit us, we don't just want best friend Jesus. We want King Jesus. We want the one who can actually turn this thing around. The one who's going to stop the storm. But you know, we also don't just want an aloof and distant and powerful King Jesus, right? We want the king that's going to be there with us. Because the deal is, he may not snap his fingers and the storm may not go away. And so we want King Jesus to be sitting there with us with his arm around our shoulders as we go through the storm. In Jesus, we get all of the above. We get a king. We get a king who's also a friend. And we get a king who will rescue us and resettle us. Listen, there's no other religion. There's no other form of spirituality. There's no other philosophy. There's no other spiritual guru that can offer this. Only Christianity puts forth a holy God who stoops so low to rescue us and to resettle us. And that's why God's people sing at the top of their lungs, joy to the world, joy to the world. The Lord, the Holy One, has come. Let earth receive her king. It's not just a Christmas anthem, it's a daily chorus, it's a daily chant for us, isn't it? Because it feeds our faith, it gives us hope. It it reminds us about how God has come to rescue us and resettle us. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe. We are in awe of your holiness. Father, we are in awe of your glory, which our eyes just can't see fully, and yet we long to sense the transcendence of Christ more and more. We long to see what has been hidden. We long to be on the Mount of Transfiguration, We can see the glory of Christ. We know that that means that we will be changed. But Father, we welcome that change because we need to be changed. Father, we are so grateful that Jesus has come down to us to be with us, to care for us, to sympathize with our weaknesses. Oh, Father, may we worship this King who has come.